Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Dardashe, Salim Barahmi with you. Uh, this is uh, a show where we talk to amazing, inspiring Palestinians about their lives at work. Today we're uh, joined by Janine Khaleh, a journalist, writer and designer. Welcome Janine, it's great to have you. Thank you, it's an honor to be here. Um, Thank you for thinking of me as inspiring. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of, I mean, I've come across you on Twitter and I, I'm a huge fan of your Twitter and I, I really enjoy the humor. Uh, so it, yeah, that's, it was always cool to see. It's, yeah, it's, I, I mean, people do speak to me about my, my Twitter and my first reaction is to be embarrassed generally just because <laughs> I shitpost so much and I, I was saying this the other day to a friend, like I tweet as though I'm tweeting to just like 10 people, like 10 followers. Like I, I forget that there are like professionals and, and you know, people all, all over the world, including yourself, that um, are seeing my my very silly thoughts sometimes. So <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's honestly very cool. And I, I guess we can just start there. One thing that, you know, it, it how do you, how do you approach social media? How do you approach things like Twitter where you want to express who you are? And also part of it is talking about Palestine, um, but also doing it in a way that I think is very unique. Um, I honestly, there's no, there's no real formula or some kind of strategized approach to it. I'm just very much myself in a way. And I know that sounds bit cliched and a bit wanky even but I think I I'm really just kind of airing you know some of my thoughts obviously not all of my thoughts um you know privacy is still quite important um but I just I think people generally especially when it comes to say politics or social justice issues um take themselves quite seriously and um and it can be antagonistic. It like it antagonizes anyone really, even people who might share the same views. And I think it's important to be able to to laugh at yourself and to be able to laugh at at anything. And I think it's also a very distinctly, well, not distinctly, but it's also a very Palestinian quality. I think to have a sense of humor, especially dark humor, um, and poke fun at things that you know, generally quite serious. Um, and also, I mean, I am, as we all are, you know, three-dimensional. So I might be tweeting about Palestine in one tweet and then in the next I will be giving my really stupid takes on, like, Harry and Meghan or <laughs> anything, really, or, or the weather. And I think that's just kind of a... I guess to look into how my brain works because I am thinking about Palestine and I am thinking about all these other things and yeah. And basically pouring out a little bit of my heart um, online. And I'm also there to connect with people as well, especially people in the diaspora, young Arabs, young Palestinians. Mm. Um, that's really why I got onto Twitter um, on top of wanting to, um, stay, on, stay on top of the news, I guess. But I joined, I joined in 2009, but I only started actually tweeting and trying to stay on top of it 
during the Arab Revolution, during the Arab Spring. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been a, um, a really important way to connect with, with others in the, the diaspora because I feel kind of disconnected here in Australia um, on Aboriginal lands. Um, and just being so far away as well, it's a, it's a way to stay linked. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, again, there's no real approach. It's just, I don't know, just, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the humor, um, I think the humor is, is what I think really um, cuts through a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the bullshit or those who take themselves a bit too seriously sometimes. And I think is a really lovely way to connect with people. I find, you know, I consume a lot of political uh, news or information through, uh, you know, comedy. Uh, most of the time, uh, and so it, it's a really powerful way. I wanted to I wanted to explore this idea of connecting and and being or feeling far away, uh, being in Australia. Um, you're Palestinian, um, so what's what's your connection to Palestine, and um, what is it like to grow up Palestinian in Australia? So I mean, my connection to Palestine is through my family and my ancestry. Um, my parents were both were both refugees. My father was born in a refugee camp in Lebanon, and my mother was born um, stateless in in the Emirates. And my grandparents and my great grandparents were exiled um, during the Nakba um, from Safad, from Akka, from Haifa. Um, so, yeah, that, that ultimately is my main connection, my family. But it's interesting because growing up, I didn't even know that I was Palestinian up until I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. Um, I went to school with, it was a mixed, a mixed group of people, um, but the only other Arabs there were, they were Lebanese. So I kind of just internalized this idea that, oh, I'm actually just Lebanese or Arab. It's not something that my parents had any conversation with me about. Um, I mean, obviously, in retrospect, looking back, we had, like, Al-Quds um, uh, framed up on the wall, um, but it wasn't, it didn't really occur to me until a bit later in life. Um, but, yeah, I mean, growing up Palestinian was, I guess, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a third culture kid in general, um, feeling quite, and again, this is such another cliche, but yeah, feeling quite out of place um, here in the West and also not fully connecting to say some of the Arab or just even some of the old school community values, um, you know, that Arab, the Arab community has, particularly as, as a woman. Um, and so, yeah, there were quite a few... I would say difficulties maybe during high school and maybe after high school. But I, I do recall in high school, I mean, there weren't that many Palestinians. There's a tiny, tiny community in Australia and it's really spread out. But I also went to school with quite a few um, Lebanese students as well. And there was always kind of a, a kind of dislike, like a support, this symbolic kind of support for, for Palestine, but kind of a dislike for Palestinians. So I would get comments, you know, from within the Arab community, and I know they were quite young, but 
things about like the Palestinian accent being, you know, like so snobby or Shafin Halcom and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so just ridiculous stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's been, I think it's, you know, no one has a choice about what ethnicity or what their ancestry is, but I feel honored to, to be Palestinian and to be, you know, the descendant of refugees and survivors um, who have been steadfast and, and resilient. Yeah. Sorry if I'm babbling. No, Stop me whenever. Not at all. I, I wanted to ask then how, you know, as someone who didn't really uh, feel or know that they were Palestinian until they're 11, you know, how did you connect to uh, forms of Palestinian identity or culture or, or the politics? Uh, was it something that was spoken about at home or did you have to look for it elsewhere? It can be particularly hard when there isn't a big community around as well to, to be able to connect with. I think you, you feel even exactly. more isolated. So when I was about 11 or 12, um, someone, there were a few Palestinian families that lived sort of in the same area. And um, one one woman sort of took upon the initiative to create like some Palestinian youth workshops. So it was tiny, it was probably about like 10 kids, um, but we all got involved in, in a number of different workshops, like art, creating pottery. Um, we also did like a rap um, lesson, it was really funny. I don't know if I still have the CD, it's very cringeworthy, but we rapped about Palestine. <laughs> so we were discovering things about um, our ancestry and like tattoos, embroidery, pottery, just the, 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 the artistic and cultural elements, our food. Um, and yeah, and, and the rap thing was really, really funny. I think one of the, the lyrics we came up with was like, red, green, white and black are the colors that hold me back. And it's like super cringe, especially with an Australian accent. And we're like really young, so it is like, eh. um, but yeah, that was sort of my introduction to it, and that's when I realized that I was Palestinian. But I, you know, when you're a young teen as well, and you're trying to figure yourself out, and you're also, I guess, rebelling, um, I felt really resistant in some ways to not particularly Palestinian identity. I mean, in some ways, yes, but for me, it was just sort of Arab identity because that was my parents, that was my family. Um, and I felt, you know, like I was really different. Um, and that's, I think, a very sort of normal thing to feel when you grow up, um, you know, in the West as well. And your parents are you're immigrants and they're in an entirely new world and they're trying to raise their children. So... Yeah, I, you know, kind of just set that aside. It wasn't really, like, I remember, I, like, my dad would change the, the radio in the car to say an Arabic song, and I'd get, like, a bit mad, and I'd be like, put it back on, you know, whatever crappy pop um, music radio channel was on. But it was only, I think, when I was about 14, 15, but mostly I would say 16, around that point, where I gained a real political consciousness and I started to do my own reading and researching. I mean, I started having conversations with one of my history teachers at school and, you know, she had mentioned a few things and I was kind of taken aback about 
exactly what was going on in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, armed with the knowledge that I had, I just felt, you know, just shocked, appalled. And I mean, I also harbored, say, a little bit of not resentment, but disappointment in my parents. Um, but I think in retrospect, they were just trying to sort of um, protect us in a way. Um, and yeah, and and again, now when I think about it, the Arabic news was always on, um, Palestine was always on the news. I distinctly recall like um, this, the siege of Jenin um, and the second intifada. And it was, I, I think in 2009 when Operation Castled, Operation Castled, um, yeah, the massacre, um, the Palestinians in Gaza, that really awakened me. Um, and yeah, it's just such a, such a huge injustice and just the idea that, you know, my, I still had, had family and still have family living in, in refugee camps with no, no right of return. I mean, the wholesale theft of land and they have to live in, in squalid conditions. And, you know, my, my father and many of his siblings were able to, to leave, which is, which is a huge thing, a huge thing, sorry. Like, and I think culturally as well, like to leave one's parents um, and to leave one's grandparents um, is so difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it was also the, you know, the, the knowledge that it could be me, like if I, or some sort of manifestation of me, if I wasn't born here, like I easily am one of those refugees, mm. one of the Palestinian refugees, um, or, you know, if I was to remain in Palestine under occupation or under these, these apartheid conditions where my land isn't liberated. Um, and so that's what really ignited my, my, my Palestinian identity. And I, you know, quickly came to realize how loaded it was to some people to say that you're Palestinian, how um, political, I mean, it, it is, I, I believe everything, almost everything is political, right? But um, the way people politicized our identity and also um, try to discredit, you know, the, the, the truth um, and the facts on the ground was also you know, a huge punch in the gut. And I think that's why I really leaned into it because um, I don't know who originally said this, but you know, to exist is to resist. And just in being able to to say that I'm Palestinian, um, no matter how far away I am, no matter how disconnected I might be, um, we still, we, we continue um, and we remain steadfast. Yeah, I mean, um, being Palestinian is also a very complex thing. You know, it's it's not one one thing. It's multidimensional and very much is a product of the context you're in. Um, and I, I understand that I have had a lot of conversations with Palestinians from all over the diaspora. Uh, you know, and there's usually a generational trauma that is uh, that starts with the grandparent who who left who had to flee who was exiled and then also the 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 the, the generation after that that just wants to survive within within the context of whether it's just a refugee camp or a place like australia or germany or the us 
So talking about Palestinianness or talking about Palestine or allowing that to manifest in many different ways sometimes is difficult just because of that environment. I, I grew up here, but uh, I went to university in the U.S., and uh, one thing my father told me just before I boarded the plane is that don't talk about politics at university. And it, it's very much to, to the point that you just raised, which is, you know, it, it's very politicized. It's very polarizing. And, you know, a lot of times it will get you in trouble. Uh, and, and that's something I wasn't really familiar with because I grew up here. So I didn't fully, the, the, the threats to Palestinianness were different. Um, so yeah, it's it's very loaded. It's a very loaded thing, and uh, so I was. I'm wondering, you know, you you ended up pursuing a career in journalism, right? How is how is that like being a Palestinian journalist in in Australian media? I can I can only imagine it wasn't easy. It was it was challenging, um, to put it very lightly. Um, so I worked at a number of. Um, national news outlets. When I first started as a journalist, I started off at local newspapers while I was studying. Um, I started studying law and journalism and I dropped law about two years in. And my dad till this day is like, I know I told you not to drop law. Um, Typical you know, Arab Yeah, yeah. But also he was like, you know, Palestinians will never get anywhere in journalism here. Like, why, like, why don't you listen to me? Um, but I very much like my dad actually and very quite stubborn and I it, it was it was jarring I mean being a really young journalist and having to deal with um, anti-Palestinian discrimination having you know interest lobby groups you know Zionist lobby groups here who would always be going back and forth and meeting up with my editors about me um, because you know I retweeted something about Gaza uh, what was going on and they really you know focused on me and my um, so-called inability to be objective um, while reporting on you know general news in Australia and yeah and I also experienced a lot of discrimination from from colleagues um, at a number of places but the thing with the lobby groups is that it followed me everywhere throughout my journalism degree, uh, not my journalism career, sorry. And it, I wouldn't back down. I, I couldn't back down because I did not want to let them win. But there also comes a point where you have to think about your own mental health and also work stability because I, no matter where I was, no matter how, how well my work, good my work was and what I was achieving as a, a really young journalist, I still felt that I was, you know, it, it was unstable. I didn't feel secure whatsoever. And I felt like I was always looking over behind, behind my back. Um, and that's really stressful. Um, so, yeah, and I had so many, so many incidents. I mean... Um, I mean, members of the, this was relayed to me actually, um, uh, I guess maybe a year into, or soon after one of my roles I had ended from someone who was quite high up and I can't really divulge too much, but, um, two members of the Israeli foreign ministry, um, like staff members, because they had 
come to Australia on a junket and they were meeting, meeting up with politicians and lobbying and also meeting up with some of the, um, the big media uh, outlets, um, brought me up on the agenda. Um, and I, I pushed to know what specifically, but of course I know that to think that someone like me who is just, you know, a young, budding, bright-eyed journalist who just wants to be able to tell stories and who shitposts on Twitter and, and, and tries to just enjoy life and, and, you know, be just be myself and to exist really was so, was so contentious. Um, and there was, say, one incident that was very telling was I was actually commissioned to write a piece about a Palestinian refugee actually from Ramallah uh, and he was coming to Australia to travel um, with, I think it was the Sydney Symphony or the orchestra, and it was sort of this um, marriage between like Tarab and Western classical music. And I, I did a piece and I, I spoke to him over the phone um, about it, I did the interview and had the piece sent off to be sub-edited and proofed. And the sub-editor, came over to me, like marched over to my table, um, slammed my, my copy onto the table and just started shouting at me, this, you know, old, old white guy. He was like, Palestine does not exist. Um, you know, you are not a journalist. Do I have to teach you how to be a journalist? How he just, he was livid. He was so livid. And I was just sitting there like, and, and nobody stood up for me. None of my colleagues who are also grown men um as you can imagine that that industry is populated by men and white men stood up for me no one no one said anything and I did try and defend myself um by saying that you know you refer to the Vatican as the Vatican it's a non-member state so the state of Palestine I don't agree with it politically <laughs> the state of Palestine or two states for example but whether you like it or not, the state of Palestine has been recognised as a non-member state of the UN and to use Palestine isn't editorially incorrect, but that's just how deep and insidious the anti-Palestinian racism is. And there were also other um, experiences at other outlets and just chilling stories or knocking back stories that I did because they didn't... They were afraid of, of what the lobby groups might say. Um, so they preemptively just stopped a lot of things from um, going ahead. And it just was just so, it was so messed up. I mean, it completely contrary to my values. Like I, I didn't feel, ultimately I didn't feel, I don't know that I, how could I be a Palestinian in, in the media landscape there? I couldn't, I, I wasn't comfortable. And I think... You know, the straw that broke the camel's back was when this young um, Palestinian woman, um, Alayd Hammer, was um, assaulted and murdered in Melbourne. And she's from 48 Palestine, historic Palestine, um, from Bakr al-Gharbiya. And a lot of the news outlets here were, because she has an Israeli passport, Israeli citizenship, were um, calling, her an, uh, calling her Israeli, an Israeli student. Um, and then it came to light that she was Palestinian. And... I was doing quite a bit of reporting. I was in touch with her family, even though we had a Middle Eastern correspondent based there. And I 
was doing quite a lot of reportage, um, you know, very focused on getting it published. And there was backlash from some of the higher-ups, can't be too specific here, um, about me kind of stepping on, on the toes of, say, like their correspondent um, and getting those stories. So instead of looking at it as something as more of a collaborative thing, like you are, you know, it, I guess it's a problem in Australian media with um, having just diverse um, a diverse number of journalists, right? Diverse voices, people who can speak other languages, people who have different insights, people who have different connections. And so I was reprimanded for that. And I had also written an opinion piece for The Guardian about um, about the young woman and um, how, you, you know, to, to call her Israeli or to call her Arab-Israeli, which is the official name for Palestinians in 48 by the State of Israel, mm -hmm. um, is erasure um, of the Palestinian identity. Um, and, you know, most Palestinians, um, according to this Pew survey, I think in 2018, um, in 48 want to be referred to at minimum as Palestinian citizens of, of Israel. Um, and so there was a lot of backlash. Um, again, uh, lobby groups were fired up again. And yeah, it's just, it's been, it was, it was exhausting. And, and these are just some of the, the key examples that come to mind. I mean, there were so many other little things that happened. And the worst part is, I mean, no one, no one cared. No one really cared. No one continues to care. It's just such a normalized, accepted thing. And I think I was viewed as a bit of a, a troublemaker. But I did my work and I did it well. So I it just, but it, it burnt me out. And um, yeah, I, I can't say that the or Western newsrooms are ever going to be kind to Palestinians. And I mean others who aren't Palestinians but aren't white also have to almost have to restrain themselves and almost have to whitewash themselves in a way and um, really have to be careful with the words that they choose because they can't offend white sensibilities. Um, and these are the conversations that we all have in the background and amongst each other. But public facing, I mean, they have to be really restrained. And it's just, it's so... It's so disingenuous, um, not of them and not of us, you know, young journalists, but of, of society and of these newsrooms and of these editors to to expect that. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a walk in the park. <laughs> I can imagine. I, you know, I'm sure that there were daily battles uh, and... You know, they're very. These are very familiar stories um, from from Palestinian journalists elsewhere who worked in similar environments and were censored. There was a chilling effect. Um, they had to always look over their shoulder, and that impacted their mental health. And I wanted to ask you: Are you are you still uh, a journalist in uh, for for a specific media outlet, or have you left that environment completely? So I don't work in, in newsrooms. I took a step back so I could freelance and also work um, at a corporation, at a firm doing content and user experience writing. So for me, I was able to much more easily com compartmentalize mm. these things um, while still focusing on, on storytelling um, and producing um, in my own time. Cool. 
um, yeah, it's a shame uh, that that's that's the environment we have to we have to navigate. You know, a lot of the time we're not allowed to tell our own stories, um, especially in, in top tier media outlets. I wanted to ask you, I want to move away from the media landscape to the political landscape in, in Australia. I think for many of us, we're not very familiar with where Palestine is situated there. Um, I mean, we've seen anti-Palestinian positions being taken by by different governments. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the top line. But where 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 is Palestine and you know vis-a-vis -vis Israel and how is it approached in domestic Australian politics? Palestine, unfortunately, is not on the map uh, in Australia whatsoever. I mean, particularly under the the Liberal government, they're called the Liberal government, the Liberals, but they are the Conservative Party here. Um, they are staunch supporters and allies of um, Israel. And, I mean, the opposing party, the Labour Party, um, is a little better in the sense that they, you know, conceded, um, right, you know, condemned settlements, for example, whereas the Liberal government won't. Um, so it's just, you know, and, and it was quite recent, I think, maybe a year or two, a year or two ago, that um, one of the members of Labour's opposition was speaking at a Zionist Federation um, talk about the IHRA uh, mm -hmm. definition um, that essentially says that anti-Zionism is, is anti-Semitism and to critique Israel um, is anti-Semitic. And um, this, this, M this MP was basically agreeing with it um, and saying that they'd hoped to, to take it on board. Um, I'm not sure whether they've, they've fully enshrined it, like the, the 11 examples. I th um, the current definition itself, I think it's like an 18 word statement, mm -hmm. which is a, a fair statement about um, racism against Jewish people. But then the, the following examples, I mean, the same lobby groups have also tried to and have been lobbying other big institutions, including media, public broadcasters, um, to adopt this um, definition. So, yeah, I think, you know, and it makes it a lot harder for, say, any journalist or any commentator who wants to point out what's happening in Palestine, what's happening to Palestinians um, in, you know, under Israeli rule, whether it's in, in 48 or under military occupation in the West Bank or in Gaza. So um, it's always been the de facto uh, state that to, to say anything that's critical of Israel is anti-Semitic. It's always been like the default or the understood thing, but there has been a push to officialize it. And we're seeing that as well in, in the US and in the UK and in Canada. And it's really concerning. And Australia's always just sort of been you know, America's lapdog in many ways. You know, we followed the US into, into illegal wars. Um, we are part of NATO. Um, yeah, it's, it's essentially we are, I mean, the state itself um, just follows the US in that regard. And, I mean, let's also talk about Australia's own attitudes towards its own Indigenous people here, 
um, there is no, there has been no reckoning with the ethnic cleansing um, and the colonization of this land. I mean, the 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 rates of deaths in custody um, of Indigenous people here is the highest in the world, mm-hmm. and so you know, if we can't even contend with that, and if this country, this state, um, isn't doing anything serious seriously in order to um, make those amends, then how can we expect them to to do anything about settler colonialism anywhere else? It makes sense that Australia is allied with Israel because they are, um, you know, both settler colonial um, projects. Um, so, yeah, I it's it's disappointing, but it's expected. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, yeah, one hopes that, you know, in, in the future, in the new future, who knows, that, that things will change. And I think change is coming. Is Unfortunately, it, it's slow. I wanted to ask about, about that. Is there, is there a movement, a social justice movement or a progressive movement or a decolonization movement taking shape that's, that is impacting Australian politics or at least grassroots politics? I mean, there are, of course, there are grassroots movements. Um, are, you, are you speaking about Palestinian ones specifically? Not specifically, no, just in general, or or if at least Palestine is situated amongst them, what's what's that landscape like? Absolutely. I mean, there is the another party. I mean, we are a two-party system. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the Greens um, who are, you know, very progressive and, you know, very progressive on Palestine, and there have been a few Green senators and MPs who have also, you know, endorsed BDS um, unapologetically um, and made their support for Palestine really clear. And and there are also, I mean, the, some of the grassroots um, decolonization movements and some of the socialist movements here are all very pro, like Palestinian liberation. Um, and yeah, and also many indigenous um, groups here as well, grassroots groups um, have made um, their stance is clear as well, like naturally, um, mm-hmm. you know, their solidarity with, with Palestinians. Um, so it is amongst amongst truly leftist progressive types, um, there is a consciousness, but then of course you're going to have your, your peps, you know, those who are progressive except mm-hmm. on Palestine. And there are so many, it is disturbing. Um, <laughs> and I think that's like the next frontier um, making these people understand, um, you know, that Palestine is not so different to to what's happening here um, in Australia and what what's happened, um, and you know that all these all these progressive movements are interconnected and they intersect. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope I hope they you know I hope those movements can grow and uh, you know find. <laughs> I see you smiling. <laughs> yeah. 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 Useless. Not so, the movements themselves, but the peps. Yeah. 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 And, and now, yeah. Talking about the movements, and I think we, you know, we see change in the U.S. We see change in different parts of the world, um, and it's inspiring. A long way to go, as you said, but it's it's needed um, because there needs to be a movement outside and inside of Palestine to really to really challenge and dismantle the apartheid system that we're facing, and so. We're counting on both in a way uh, and hopefully it comes at some point but you know sometimes you look at the the, the world and and it, you, you can only be pessimistic but 
Um, well, I, I, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you and to learn about your life and, uh, um, and also your, your Twitter. Um, you know, um, <laughs> I'm be... sorry if I've been underwhelming compared to my, my Twitter posts. But... Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it and sending all my love to, to Palestine. And I hope I can get back there again as soon as possible um, because I, yeah, miss it dearly. And, um, yeah, I, yeah, it's sad over here <laughs> being so far away, I guess, from, you know, also family in, in Lebanon and in Europe. So, yeah, it would be yeah, I, I can't wait until COVID is over because I'm coming straight for Palestine. <laughs> Hello, Sahla. <laughs> Shukran, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you.